Chapter 19, verse 21. Now after all these things had taken place, Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Acacia. And he said, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So after sending two of his assistants, Timothy and Eratus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed on for a while in the providence of Asia. So despite all this stuff happening, all the conflicts that he's gone through, and despite the warnings that Jerusalem is getting dicey as far as your safety goes, as far as what the theological, political things are happening, he's still determined to bring the donation back. Now remember, he's been going around the world collecting donations for Jerusalem because they're struggling. And he is determined to take that back to them and reconnect the people in Jerusalem. That's where he began, Antioch and in Jerusalem and that part of the region of the world. This is also the time that you're seeing him push harder and harder and harder into Gentile regions. And you're seeing, yes, he's still going to the Jew first, but he's not being, he's not there as long and he's pressing on to other places. So this is what he does. He sends Timothy and Aratus on to Macedonia ahead of him to kind of prepare the way for him and that kind of stuff as he ties up things in Ephesus. He's been in Ephesus for three years. It's not like he's just like, well, time to move on to the next church for another exciting big tent revival message. He's going to wrap things up. And as he's wrapping things up, at that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen. He gathered these together along with the worksmen and similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business, and you see and hear that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but in practically all the providence of Asia, by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. There is danger not only in that this business of ours will come in disrepute, but also that the temple, the great goddess Artemis, will be regarded as nothing. And she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. So there's a silversmith by the name of Demetrius. And one of the things that the silversmiths would do is they would make these little shrines, little silver shrines that you would buy. And you could worship Artemis. And this is a huge business, a huge moneymaker for them. And Paul, by preaching this Yahweh is superior, turn away from your gods, Demetrius sees as a threat to his business. Now, whether he's exaggerating how influential Paul is, like is Paul so influential that literally the entire pagan worshiping of gods in Ephesus is going to go completely out of business and the temple is going to be completely abandoned? Probably that's not going to happen. Yet at the same time, like this also shows that this is a huge threat. He's definitely exaggerating, but there's definitely a legitimate threat here that Paul has had as he's been teaching. Who is Artemis? I briefly talked about the devotion to Artemis last week, but we didn't really go into the nature of Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess. She was one of the most revered, what she was, she was one of the most revered goddesses in all the Roman Empire right up there with Aphrodite. She was also known as Diana. Artemis is the Greek goddess, 
And Art, Diana was the Roman goddess, but Artemis had been around for so long and had been so revered that Diana kind of just got absorbed into Artemis and became a big part of the Roman Empire. She was the goddess of the hunt and childbearing and chastity. It was usually pictured as a young lady carrying a hunting bow or as a woman with many breasts, although some people have argued that that might actually be her chest full of many eggs. But either way, it was a fertility goddess. Ephesus was so dedicated and so devoted to Artemis in an absolutely fanatic kind of a way. Many people in the ancient world say there was no goddess that was as revered and devoted to and worshipped as the Ephesians did to Artemis in their city. I'm going to read some things from some very male scholars. was once told a long time ago, if somebody says it really well, then why try to re-say it? I'll just quote them. So Nibi says this, Artemis worship was not very different from the other deities in the pagan cults. Not every goddess had processions. However, processions from the Artemisians around Perdigre occurred on center certain days, probably during Tis Epinonivik, the holy month of Artemis, which was called Artemisian. The wooden statue of Artemis, card, carved by Idios, was probably carried on a four-wheel carriage. The statue would have been dressed and adorned with the necessary care that was given to her in the imperial period by women of the high society in the city who served as adorners of the goddess. The procession presumably stopped at the altars along the road, where worshippers sang, prayed, and made offerings. All who participated were invited to a common meal that took place after the procession. When Artemis had returned to her temple in processions to Artemision, the goddess represented by the most beautiful woman returned from hunting, accompanied by hunters and dogs and a crowd of people. The entire city was involved in this and a greater extent than probably even the Macy Day Parade. Witherington says this, This last point, speaking of the quote that I just read, brings to light that the fact that the Ephesian Artemis, even before Paul's day, had taken on various of the attributes of the Greek Artemis while retaining some of her local traits as the Anatolian Great Mother. There continues to be much controversy about whether the numerous orbed objects on the front of Artemis statue are, with the usual guesses being either breasts or bulls testicles or some sort of eggs. In any of these cases, the image would connect the goddess with fertility. One of the reasons for the debate on this issue is that the Greek Artemis is also known as a major supporter of chastity, being a virgin goddess. Another matter of considerable importance is that the Temple of Artemis was widely recognized as a place of asylum and sanctuary, and part of this involved its being a safe place to deposit one's money. In such circumstances, there was always an economic significance to the temple, not limited to the religious tourist trade. The Temple of Artemis and its precincts was some four times the size of the Parthenon, which that was 425 feet by 225 feet with a 127 60-foot calls. And it was four times than that. And was considered one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Religious significance and power were widely recognized. Pausians writing in the middle of the 2nd century A.D. states, All cities worship Artemis of Ephesus, and individuals hold her honor above all the gods. 
The reason, in my view, is the renown of the Amazons, who traditionally dedicated the image, also the extreme antiquity of its sanctuary. Three other points as well have contributed to her renown. The size of the temple, surpassing all other buildings among humans. That's a big deal, because if you've ever seen, gone to Rome or anything like that, or seen archaeological pictures, their buildings were absolutely phenomenally huge. The eminence of the city of the Ephesians and the renown of the goddess who dwells there. One of the major points of our narrative is to show that Christianity could even challenge and be seen as a threat to one of the greatest and most potent of the pagan cults. In fact, Hossians informs us that this cult was the most widely followed in the ancient world, which some 33 worship sites from Spain to Syria and the empire. Finally, the inscriptional evidence shows us the degree to which Paul's proclamation would have been seen to be a challenging to the claims about the benefits of Artemis worship. For example, in 1 Ephesus, which is a document, don't confuse that with the, like the first letter of Ephesians, 1 Ephesus 504 portrays Artemis as one who answers prayer. Another inscription, she is acclaimed as Savior and seen as having lordship over supernatural powers, including demons. None of the pagan gods are really known for answering prayer. Gods don't really care about humans. Humans are there just to sacrifice to and to make worship to. And so the fact that she is known as answering prayer makes her unique. And as Paul begins to push this idea that Jesus answers prayer and that kind of stuff, they would have seen that as a threat. The fact that she was in, known to actually combat demons and that kind of stuff, they didn't really make distinctions between demons and, and they, they knew that there were spirits that were nefarious and tormentors and tricksters and there were good spirits that could kind of help you. But remember, even the good spirits didn't really care about you that much and they weren't really really involved. So for a goddess to really make a distinction between demons and other gods and then to be called savior. Remember, gods don't really care about humans, so why would they be acknowledged as a savior? It was not uncommon for the Roman emperor to call themselves the savior, um, but not really gods. So there's a lot, there's, well, there's very little overlap, but the overlap that we have between Artemis and, and, and Jesus, um, the, the people of Ephesians would have seen this as a big threat because a goddess actually cared about evil forces and stopping them. A goddess actually saved people. A, god that, a goddess actually answered prayers. And now there's this new God that's coming in and threatening that corner idea of what it means to have a relationship. The temple statue of Artemis also wore a zodiac necklace indicating her power over fate and the control of the stars. Of course, the salvation being asked of Artemis, Artemis was to do with the rescue from danger or the restoration of health or sanity. But as we have seen, this is part of the salvation package from the Lucian point of view as well. We might have a tendency to think that what was an issue of what was at issue was two rival forms of private devotion and belief. But this would be a mistake. Religious activity in the empire's cities was in the main, in the main a very public affair, intertwined with politics, beliefs about the well-being of the city as a whole. They didn't have separation of church state. They didn't have this idea that you go to work and then you go to church and the two sometimes never ever meet. In the ancient world and in most parts of the world outside of America, Canada, and Europe, religion is interwoven with 
every aspect of life. There is no separating. There is to try to dissect the two will kill both. And so this is a huge threat. And you need to understand how devoted there's almost a fanaticism here. She was considered a virgin, but her worship of her involved a lot of sex. And she didn't really stay a virgin. Her virginity just got rededicated and renewed every year and a huge festival. And one of the things that they would do is that the men, um, castrating herself was a big part of being priests to her. And they would have this huge festival every year where they would rededicate her virginity and they would celebrate her. And there was lots of alcohol, lots of drinking and that kind of stuff. And sometimes they would have this huge, long parade and they would, the men would sometimes run down and then the alcohol and the, the passionate fanatic frenzy of the celebrations and, and whatever is demonically is going on at that time. Sometimes in their, their fervor, they would literally right there in the street castrate themselves and then offer their member as an offering to her in her temple. And that, that's Artemis. And we're, we're not just talking about people who kind of like, I mean, no offense by this, but it kind of just showed up at church on Sundays. We're talking about there is no separation of church and state. I mean, the, the gods regulate everything. There's a devote, there's um, the fanaticism in a lot of ways. It is every part of their culture. And they're sacrificing their children and that kind of stuff to these gods. This is what Paul's encountering in Ephesus. Whether Demetrius is overly exaggerating or not, it's at least a big enough deal that he's going to put his business on hold, create a riot, and stir everybody up in order to attack somebody because he feels threatened by it. He feels either he personally feels threatened enough that his business is going to loss, that he's going to amplify the threat even more in order to make, to make something happen. Why would this be a big deal? Merchants were pretty low on the social status in the Roman Empire. They weren't, the, 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 in order to be high and elite in social status, you had to be born into wealthy families. And you were born to certain family names or certain political government status. Anybody beyond that immediately drops significantly. Like in politics and in wealthy families, the pecking order is very close. And you've got to really be like, really? That's what makes you just slightly higher than this person and it's that big of a deal? I don't really see it, right? But when you get out of that and you start getting to merchants and people in the streets and, and, and sailors and all that kind of stuff, the, 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 the gap between the two become huge. In Romans, uh, look down on people who work with their hands. Wealthy people can literally sit around and eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die. And if they did do any work, it was just sitting around doing politics. And, in, in, and we saw in um, Athens, the really wealthy people just spent all their time just debating, arguing about things. The silversmith, the only thing that brought them up to a high social status was their business. And they would buy their social status. And so they would take a certain profit, a certain percentage of their profit, and they would put it into buying their social status. Doing favors for people high up and, and throwing parties for high up. And if their money started getting threatened, their social status begins to get threatened. 
And when you don't have good social status, well, then you're talking about absolute poverty, um, the inability to maybe even survive. You become a peasant who's literally going from paycheck to paycheck. Um, well, they didn't have paychecks, but that idea. Wondering whether you're going to make it to the next week. And the only thing that gives them any kind of middle class status, for lack of a better phrase, since that doesn't really exist, is their merchant business. So for this to be threatened, so what is this showing? First, that Christianity has spread well beyond Ephesus during Paul's three years in Asia. The fact that Demetrius says everywhere Paul goes, he's threatening paganism, means that Christianity at this point has spread so much and has influenced so many people around the empire, the news is beginning to travel to all the cities about the impact that it has. That's a big deal. There's no telephones, there's no Pony Express. They, they have nothing. There's no telegrams, no nothing. All you have is word of mouth from people traveling around. Enough of Christianity has impacted the world enough. Nobody's talking about this. They see it as a huge impact. That's a big, big deal when that news begins to spread. And second, the summary of Paul's evangelistic preaching is very similar to his speech in the pagans in Athens, which means that neither he nor Luke saw his preaching in Athens as a failure. The fact that Paul is employing the same kind of preaching and they're seeing his same preaching means that he saw this as a success and he's continuing to do it. Demetrius turns the entire city against Paul. Turns the entire city against Paul. Verse 28. When they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with an uproar, and the crowd rushed to the theater together, dragging with them Gaius and Articus and the, the Macedonians who were with Paul, traveling companions. But when Paul wanted to enter the public assembly, the disciples would not let him. So the crowd becomes enraged. And they go into uproar, and we all know what mob mentality can do. They can't Paul, so they just start grabbing people that they know have been associating with Paul. And Paul actually wants to enter in. Okay, He sees his companions being threatened. He sees them going down, and he wants to enter in. But all the disciples are like, no, 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 no. That's not going to do you any good. Right? I mean, this is one of the first things they teach you in lifeguarding training and first aid, as if somebody is being threatened, they're dying and you're going to probably die trying to save them too, then don't do it. Like, right? If somebody is in the water with an electrical line going around it, you don't jump in to save them because you're just going to die too. And so this is probably what they're saying. Like, look, what are you going to do? What are you going to do against a giant crowd of angry people who severely outnumber you? What kind of ability do you have? So even some of the providential authorities who were his friends sent a message to him urging him not to venture into the theater. This is a big deal because Paul has been so influential for so long now that there are very high-ranking providential leaders now in Ephesus that Paul is well-connected to that care about Paul enough that they're willing to risk their political reputation to say, don't go, Paul. This is not good. Look, I get politics. I get all this stuff. Don't go. This is not worth it. And so, but it also shows you that this is going on for a while. If they have time to hear about it and then write a message or repeat the message to somebody and have them run through the streets to tell them, that means that we're talking about multiple hours are going by and this riot and this rampage as people are angry and being stirred up. 
So in this theater of writing, some were shouting one thing and some for another, and the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had met together. Welcome to Mob Mentality. I thought we were here to hate on these people over here. That's why we're so angry. I thought we were here because dogs aren't getting a fair treatment. Like, I don't know, like all these random things. And now what's happened is for a lot of the crowd, this has nothing to do with Paul, has nothing to do with Demetrius, has nothing to do with the, the paganism being threatened. It's just, I want to be angry. Let's be angry together. But that makes the crowd even more dangerous because that means everything's irrational. I mean, mom mentality is already irrational. If you don't even know why you're angry and why you're there, it's even more irrational. Some of the crowd concluded it was about Alexander because the Jews had pushed him to the front, and Alexander, dressed, gesturing with his hand, was wanting to make a defense before the public assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted at unison, Great as Artemis of Ephesians, for about two hours. Alexander is not even a Christian. He's a Jew. He's a prominent Jew. And they see him being grabbed and shoved to the forefront. And they think, oh, this is about Judaism. And they get even riled up more. Now, why would they grab Alexander? Because remember, at this time, many Greeks still had a hard time distinguishing the difference between Christians and Jews. They knew the way movement was birthed out of Judaism and out of Jerusalem and this Jewish man by the name of Jesus. They knew that the Christian morality, like, look, there's nobody else in the ancient world who's talking about morality and talking about down on the gods like the Jews. Nobody. And so if you've got this Christianity that's only been around for about 20 years, which remembers a very short amount of time and a world that has no means of modern-day communication, they're still going to see, oh, you're talking about a singular God. You're talking about morality. You're down on pegging gods. You must be Jewish. You're the only crazy people that we know that talk like this. They probably see Alexander, who's a part of the synagogue and an influential figure, and they think, well, let's grab the guy at the top and start threatening him. And Alexander's probably trying to say, I hate Paul too. Like, that's not cool. Like, I'm all for this right. But when they see that, they immediately start going to Artemis. Because once again, every Jew hates the pagan god. So if he's up there, then it must be some anti-pagan god thing. So we're just going to start chanting, Great is Artemis, for two hours. Two hours. This just shows you that nothing is rational right now. Absolutely nothing. It's pure chaos. After this city secretary quieted the crowd. He said, Men of Ephesus, what person is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the keeper of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image that fell from heaven? So because these facts are indisputable, you must keep quiet and not do anything reckless. For you have brought these men here and are neither temple, that are, who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If then... Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against someone. The courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another there. But if you want anything in addition, it will have to be settled in a legal assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to explain this disorderly gathering. After he had said this, 
he dismissed the assembly. This secretary is in charge for regulating the city, regulating the theater. He was a clerk or a city official, mayor or somebody a little bit more powerful than that. And he was in charge of keeping records, keeping charge of the money that was deposited in the temple, and serving as a register for everything that happened. What he does is he gets up, and he has no interest in protecting Paul. He has no interest in protecting Christianity. What he is interested in is, this is a Greek city that has been given Roman status in the empire. And this has given them great economic and political um, chips and markers and, and, and privileges and abilities. And the one thing that Rome is, is riots and, and, and disturbances, and especially unlawful ones. And so the secretary gets up and basically says, wait, 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 wait. I have been investigating, and I've been hearing everything, and there are no criminal charges being brought against these people. And therefore, your writing is just pure writing. It's creating chaos. It's creating disturbance. And there are Roman officials in this city. And if they begin to get wind, and probably already have, of what is happening, and they find out that there is no legal reason for this. I mean, if a murder had been committed or treason against the Roman government, yes, that would be understandable. But it's over like, theological belief systems of a religion that the Rome doesn't care about. And look, everybody knows how huge the temple and the worship of Artemis is. I have seen no evidence that this religion is about ready to collapse in the next couple hours or the next couple days or the next couple weeks. You need to stop and you need to go home because if you don't, then we're going to be brought up on charges by the Roman government for an illegal, unlawful disturbance and then we're going to lose all of our status and the Roman Empire. And like I mentioned, social status is everything in these kind of cultures. God used them. This is a pure politician. This guy has no interest in Christianity. He doesn't care about Paul. But what he does care about is not losing his social status. And God used the absolute selfishness and wisdom of a Roman official who probably knows very little nor cares anything about these people in order to drive away the riots and to protect these men, these Christians, who were being attacked and threatened. And so the assembly disbars. But at this time, Paul's going to realize, my welcome is no longer here anymore. This means we know that Demetrius has got an eye on Paul. And there are other people. And it doesn't take long for people to trump up charges against you. And we have seen that over and over again in the Bible. We have seen that over and over again in our own lives as we've watched the news and done things. They disassemble. Chapter 20, verse 1. Luke is making this point that while the way was seen as a threat to the religious Jews and the local Greek cults, again and again Rome's authorities did not see the way as being a threat to their primary interests. Luke's argument is that Christianity challenged society at the social levels but need not disturb Rome's legal and military authority. 
And that, I think that's a powerful statement. At its very beginning, and at its core, should still continue to be true Christianity. Christianity has always, God, Jesus, the disciples, have always been interested in shaking things up in the world socially changing social statuses, bringing equality to people of all races and ethnicities and, and genders and social statuses. It's interested in turning the world upside down on its idea of what will bring you happiness and peace and contentment, other gods versus Jesus, that kind of stuff. Christ has always intended to stir things up social status-wise. But never, ever, ever has Christianity presented itself as being a threat to the politics or the military of governments in any kind of way. Even God, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and God to God. Like when it comes to how people are treated, when it comes to how people are accepted, when it comes to how people are able to have salvation, I will mix it up as much as I want. But when it comes to governments doing what they want and in political, military kind of sense, well, it is not the purpose of Christians to destroy that and bring it down. That is God's job. That has always been. God has never said. He says, I will use you to spread the gospel. I will use you to change lives. I will use you to become father to the fatherless. But he has never said, I will use my people to lift up kings and bring down kings. He says, I lift up kings and bring down kings. That is his job to overthrow governments. And he does a really good job if you've read the First Testament. And his most favorite way of overthrowing governments is bringing in a foreign government to squash everything. This is what Luke is trying to show. That overall, Christianity is not a threat to the political or military power of the Roman government. What it is a threat to is the way that people are mistreated and in, a, in a nation and in a culture. It's about defending those who are weak or socially unaccepted or marginalized or don't have a voice.